Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com, or you can also find this podcast at www.aboutsexpodcast.com. With me today is Kristen Casey, who is a dating and intimacy coach and surrogate partner. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Angela. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's been a crazy week here in Austin, but I'm doing very well today. Thanks. Yeah, I know. It sounded it sounds like a lot's going on in Austin. Yeah, um, yeah. It's been very cold, which we're not used to in Central Texas, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're getting through it. Yeah, I'm guessing. So, like for people who don't know, like what's going on in Austin right now? Oh yeah, so it's just um, been below freezing for like six straight days, and everybody's power and water went out, mm-hmm. and so uh, people have, and still some people don't have power and water. So it's just been very, very sketchy, and people have been um, actually dying. Yeah, so that sounds like a lot going on. <laughs> it's been very busy. Yeah, but today things are getting back to normal, and and we have a lot of amazing people in the city that are pitching in. So hey, I've heard I've heard around the bend that Austin is supposed to be some kind of weird place. What's going on with that, Kristen? <laughs> and we're really proud of that fact, actually. Um, you know, there used to be bumper stickers. You would see them everywhere. I, you don't so much anymore. But T-shirts and everything. Um, uh, uh, keep it weird. You know, that was like Austin's edict. And um, just because we're kind of this weird vestige of liberalism and um, art, you know, there's a lot of, uh, musicians and artists and just, you know, kind of hippie type people here, you know? So, um, we're like the, what Berkeley is to California, Austin is to Texas kind of, we're just like the, the hippie melting pot, I guess. (laughs) I actually went to college in Eugene, Oregon. So that's what it sounds like to me is the Eugene, Oregon of Texas, but in the middle of like this conservative Republican state. Yeah. We stick out even more. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah. Because I think Oregon and California are both, you know, they, they kind of have a lot of um, uh, a lot of weirdness, like throughout the state. In a good <laughs> That's way. just what they're I known mean, for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So, I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. (laughs) Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels and your sex drive. So what's cool about this group is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you. 
in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample and a urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically, they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is trylgc.com slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. Well, so anyhow, let's talk a little more about like what you do in the field of sexuality. So you're a sexual surrogate. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah. So I'm, you know, the broader term that you could describe my work would just be, I'm a sex counselor, you know, I'm sexuality counseling. Um, but, uh, beneath that are sort of two distinct job descriptions. And one is as an intimacy coach and the other is as a surrogate partner. So I'll just, and, but there's a lot of overlap between the two of those. So I'll describe surrogate partner therapy first, probably because, um, it's a very distinct modality within the field of sex therapy. And, um, uh, it's essentially, it's a type of cognitive behavioral therapy, really. But the thing about circuit partner therapy is that it's really t- a unique type of therapy in that it's very hands-on, it's experiential, and it's a, a triadic relationship. So I'm a surrogate partner. I work with a client and his therapist, and I it's always a triadic relationship. That's what makes it so distinct. distinct. So usually either the therapist or the client will reach out to me once they've sort of been working together for a few months or maybe even years. And they've just sort of plateaued to the point where the client isn't quite ready to go out into the world and, you know, start uh, dating and really building a genuine physically and emotionally intimate relationship with someone. But he's not going to get too much further with just talk therapy itself. And so what really is helpful at that point at juncture is to reach out to a professional like me who is a tr- who works as a like a transitional partner in a safe and structured environment developing an authentically intimate relationship over the course of usually about 15 sessions and it's a it's a very structured environment and there's a very distinct set of exercises that go along with about these 15 you know roughly sessions and in that time frame Um, say I'm seeing the client once a week or every other week. So it can last for like three months or six months. I'm working with a client like once a week or every other week. And then after every session, I'm talking with this therapist and we're exchanging information that's helping her and her therapy, her talk therapy or his talk therapy with the client. Um, And so uh, in that way, it really benefits not just the client to have this sort of safe structured Um, but authentic, emotionally intimate and physically and sexually intimate relationship with, with, with me. Um, But it also helps his therapist and, and helps his therapy progress because I'm in constant contact with his therapist, you know, sharing what's going on in the sessions, what it's bringing up, what his reactions are to developing this relationship. And so the therapist gets to see 
um, a side of the client or, you know, gets a lot more information that, that she would otherwise not be able to get with the client who I should have started with this is single. It's a little bit like, um, it started with Masters and Johnson when they were working with couples and couples who were one of them had some sort of sexual dysfunction and they would have, you know, both part parties of the couple that usually a married couple come in, but they also got a lot of clients who were like single men and a handful of single women, but you can't really work with a client and help him overcome his dysfunction unless he has a partner. So then they started sort of employing, um, uh, what they called partner surrogates. So for these men who would single men who would come in and uh, with that, some sort of dysfunction, they would usually get a nurse or um, someone like that who would volunteer to work with him as his temporary partner and um, through a series of sessions, help him work through his sexual dysfunction with their methods. So they're an organization, this was back in the late sixties and there was an organization that um, developed shortly after that in the 70s called IPSA, the International Professional Surrogates Association, that sort of took over that work. And so um, they, they're the training and supervising organization, be trained and supervised me, and they've been around for almost 50 years now. And um, it's a small organization and there's only a handful of IPSA trained surrogate partners, you know, like less than 50 as far as I know in the country and possibly the world working in this vein. And um, we, work as temporary partners for single men and women and, and people of all genders and, and sexualities who are overcoming issues of, of sexual and emotional intimacy and function. Yeah. I hope that no, it makes sense. And I'm just basically, you know, like it's kind of the difference between what I do. So I'm a sex therapist, but a talk therapist and, and you you do a type of sex therapy that includes your body and your relationship. Like, like you said, cultivating a relationship and connecting with the client at a deeper level. So it's like they're creating a relationship with you, but it's a, it's a surrogate relationship. It's not meant to be one that's long-term, but it's meant to be to help them overcome these different sexual issues that they're working through, whether it be ED or even like I know that social anxiety or sexual anxiety, severe anxiety around even getting into a relationship can be an example of one. I happen to know a local sex surrogate, so I'm, I'm very familiar with the process, oh, but I'm good. making sure oh, clients okay, are familiar too, or listeners are familiar as well. So like what yeah. would be an example of a thing or like a type of intervention that you would do with a client that would help them kind of work through a sexual problem? So a lot of clients who come to me, they are working with, they're dealing with anything from um, emotionally based um, erectile dysfunction or unreliable erections to perhaps later life virginity. That's not uncommon at all. That's one of, um, in fact, it's one of my most favorite things to work with. Um, and maybe they um, are a 30 or 40 or 50 or 70 year old virgin because uh, they were raised in a very strict religious upbringing or they have some sexual abuse or trauma or bullying or, you know, there's a, a variety of reasons a person can end up in that situation. But the older they get, you know, the more challenging it is to break that cycle. Mm -hmm. um, I also work with a lot of clients who um, have disabilities or injuries or like post-cancer, post-prostate surgery. Um, uh, you know, there's performance anxiety, which can bleed into the, you know, the three major uh, most common dysfunctions or um, dissociation or low desire. Um, so there's a variety of reasons they come to me. The methods that we use, 
the exercises that we use um, were invented and refined a long time ago by Masters and Johnson and IPSA. Um, and of course, the relationship and the work take on a life of their own as you go through the um, series of exercises. But the exercises themselves, you know, it's, um, you you pretty much do all of the same ones with all of with all of your clients. You know, you may um, do them a little bit differently or or spend more time on one than the other. You know, depending on the client and their needs. But um, it's all the foundation of it. You know, it's it all starts with something called sensate focus, which is a certain type of touch and helping the client really understand um, and uh, uh, get comfortable with. Um, exchanging touch and how to touch and how to sort of drop into their body and, and touch in a way where they're really focused on the sensation. That's what sensate focus means, actually, is focusing on sensation. So the first exercises all start with just exchanging touch, you know, on the hands and the arms and then the face. And so each session, as you go along, you progress from exchanging. And they're also, I should say, communication exercises, relaxation exercises, mindfulness and embodiment. So there's a lot going on in every session, you know, like my sessions are two hours each and they usually take place every other week or so. In the first hour, we're doing relaxation exercises, communication exercises. Um, you know, we're getting familiar with each other for the first few sessions, and then we're exchanging touch. So the first session, we might start by exchanging a 20-minute touch or um, on each other's hands and arms. And they're learning how to experience touch, um, the pleasure of touch in their own hands and then on their own arms and hands. Um, as opposed to being in their head and being self-conscious and thinking about, am I doing it right? Or, you know, what does she like? Just learning how to drop into our bodies and, and, and in that more instinctual way of just exchanging pleasurable touch. And so you move on from there, from the hands and arms to the face, and then um, to, uh, there's a foot bath. That's a, a really nice session where you exchange, giving each other really um, sensual foot bath. And then, um, and then there's some exercises about body image where you, um, I think around session four usually is when we start doing um, nude exercises where we're um, talking about our bodies and, and revealing to each other our bodies and our insecurities and the things we like about our bodies. And then you move on to um, more sensual touch where you're caressing each other's backs and like our entire bodies. So, but not quite in sexual areas yet. And as the sessions go on, um, you're doing the back of the body, the front of the body. And then, um, you know, six or so sessions in, you start with more sexual touch. And so if the client is ready, you know, some clients definitely need to go slower than others. And so the, the second half of the, say, 15 session series, their client is learning a lot about how to give and receive sexual touch. And that includes, you know, um, manually with their hands and then eventually on to um, oral stimulation. And the last few sessions um, usually will be when we have actual intercourse. And so I teach them a lot about, you know, because some of them are virgins and then others aren't. And they don't necessarily need to learn so much about positions and how it all, the mechanics of how it works, but just how to be in their body versus their head when they're um, having intercourse and interacting sexually with a woman. But by then we've developed a relationship, like we've grown really close and attachment is often developed, you know? I mean, ideally um, there's a genuine, authentically, emotionally 
intimate relationship taking place. And through this process, um, their whatever issue they're dealing with, whether that's premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction or um, self-consciousness or performance anxiety or dissociation, they're also constantly in touch with their therapist. I'm in touch with their therapist. And so um, they're working through their issues slowly as we're progressing along in this relationship. And so usually by the end, I mean, there's a really fantastic success rate with this type of therapy. Uh, most of my clients overcome their issues and go on. And usually they've started dating before the end of the series, um, or at least they're on a dating site. You know, they may not be having sex with someone else, but they're on a dating site and they're starting to go out. And so there's a little bit of overlap and they have the support system in place as they're sticking their toe in the water out there in the real world. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how it all works. Yeah, no, I definitely, I've seen some real positive things there. And even, you know, like, so depending on my own clients, like where they're at and what they're working towards, I know that it's it's in that single to dating realm where it seems to be very difficult to have a dysfunction of some sort. Because like if you're married or you're already in a relationship, then usually there's an investment between the two parties in making that better. And so like a partner who's already their partner is willing to do all of those exercises. So like in my practice, I'm not doing it with them, but I'm teaching them to do it with each other. And then they're processing that exercise with me, right? like verbally. Exactly. But then right. when somebody's in this single space of like, I don't have a partner and I, I've had people who are dating and they're too worried about even trying to be sexual with their potential partner because they're like, I have this problem. This problem's going to stop me from, or stop them from loving me or stop this person from investing. And so I've seen it be very valuable for people in that kind of process of like, they need to feel a sense of confidence that they can be healed and that they can actually be sexual, but like without the high risk the high stakes of I could lose a partner at any given time because I have erectile dysfunction or I have orgasmic disorder or whatever it is that they're struggling with. Yeah, the anxiety can be so overwhelming that if there was any chance that they were going to have a successful first interaction with this, you know, new partner that they've started dating, I mean, those chances just sort of are very low because the anxiety is so high. The expectations are so high. I mean, once you're out of high school or certainly college, especially for men, I, I generally work mostly with straight men. I, I mean, as a um, just because that's most of the calls that I get. Um, but there are a lot of expectations on them once they're mm -hmm. 22, 23, 24. They know they're supposed to know how to do all this stuff. And the older they are, the more those expectations are in place. You're not just supposed to know how to do it, but you have to be good at it. And you're not supposed to ask for help. And you're certainly not supposed to say, hey, I've got a little issue here. You know, there some women can be very understanding, but it, you know, it can feel emasculating to the to the guy. And that just sort of contributes to the dis dysfunction to begin with. And that that level of confidence they can get from having this experience with a surrogate partner um, can then lead them to go get the experience that gives them more confidence. And it becomes this really fantastic, you know, upward cycle. Whereas um, otherwise they just get stuck where they don't have the confidence to get the experience that they need to, to build their confidence. And well, you know, what's interesting about it. I like some of the exercises that you work with clients. I, I honestly think relationship like in couples, essentially, I wish couples did that on a regular basis. Yeah. Like yeah. the idea of like, so I've actually watched a documentary about sexual surrogacy and I can't remember the name of it, 
Like it was, it was, it showed all of these, like they kind of documented what it looks like, the sessions. And I remember the session about body image and it showed like they, you know, worked first how they prepped, like we're going to get naked together and, and like standing in front of a mirror and feeling a sense of confidence in your body and feeling like it's okay. But then you could see the person go back to their therapist and basically say, you know, it was hard. I've never been naked in front of somebody and I was scared to death to do that, but they made it easier because we were talking through it and engaged. But like, even that, like, if you've never been naked in front of somebody, I mean, think of just the the terror of doing that and in the yeah. beginnings of a relationship with without that sense of like, I'm not going to reject you. I'm here with you. I'm present. You know, like, that's something that you offer that in a relationship, again, it's high stakes when people are just getting together. It's a real fear, you know? It is. It is. And, and, you know, as you age and your body changes, maybe you were really confident before, but, you know, and I've had clients who've had, you know, multiple surgeries so their, or their body doesn't look the way it used to, or just, you know, um, or just as you age or you have children. Um, and so the confidence you used to have can go out the window that that body image exercise that we do. I love it so much because in the span of 45 minutes, you reveal so much to each other that the average couple does over the course of like six months really, or, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on how often they get together and how often they prefer the lights on or whatever. And it's sex is so much better when you're not wondering, you know, are they looking at my stretch marks or, you know, or, uh, or whatever it is. And, and, uh, it's tremendously helpful and it is terrifying going in. Also, they, every time I describe <laughs> it, they just, that you should see almost to a man, my client's eyes will get kind of big and they're like, and I'm like, it's really much more fun. <laughs> like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> I won't destroy you. <laughs> like, that literally sounds like torturous, like, like some medieval thing you're describing. Like I'm supposed to stand naked and describe to you everything I don't like about my body, but yeah, but I go first. And, and um, one of the funniest things I hear also from men is um, usually afterwards when, like when I'm done, cause it'll take me 20 minutes to go head to toe through my body and point at everything I like and don't like about it. And most of the guys will look at me and say, I never have given my body that much thought my entire life. <laughs> and I said, this is a good lesson to know that most women do as much as I do. I'm no different than most women. This is how much women think about their bodies compared to most men. And then when they do it and they have to walk head to toe through their body, I'll notice them they'll be, they'll, they'll pause at some point. Maybe it's, a, you know, at their hips or their belly or their chest or their knees or something. And they're like, I've literally never given any thought to it. Um, <laughs> and, and afterwards they feel like they have this whole different relationship with their bodies. So it can be really empowering. Yeah. Well, it's like you're taking ownership of these pieces. Like I've never even yeah. touched or looked upon this and now it's like, Oh, those are my hips. Okay. I can be down with those hips. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I always get to do when I start is as a recovered alcoholic and addict, I always get to say the first thing is I love my body with all its idiosyncrasies or so-called flaws, whatever, because I points, I tried to poison it for 15 years and it is still like working hard for me. Like I, (laughs) I should not be functioning the way I'm functioning, you know? And so um, when I first started doing this work, I, you know, I grew, I've grown a lot through doing the work because you know, you learn the most when you teach something, right? And so I've I've come to really love my body on a level that I didn't before because of doing that particular exercise. Well, so let's learn a little bit about that history because you, you, in addition to being a sex surrogate, you kind of, uh, you've written a book, I'll throw it out here. It's called Rock Monster. 
uh, My Life with Joe Walsh, which I've read at least half. I'm very interested. So tell tell me a little bit about what brought you here. Okay. <laughs> like your history. Yeah. So I'm also a writer. I'm an intimacy coach and surrogate partner, and I'm also a writer. And I try to split my time 50-50, but it rarely I, – I, writing usually gets relegated to the back burner. But I did um, spend a few years writing that book, and it came out in 2018. And it's a memoir of mostly of the 10-year period of my 20s in which I spent um, six years with Joe Walsh, who's the guitar player for the Eagles, and he had his big solo career, and he's known as you know one of the greatest rock guitarists in, in rock and roll history. Um, and we were very much in love. We met in 88. I was 20. He was 40. I had just overcome a meth addiction and um, had a drinking problem, you know, but I was working in clubs. And so from my perspective, I was, you know, probably um, I didn't have the problem I thought I had, um, but I was off hard drugs. And then I met Joe, who was a 40 year old cocaine addict and high functioning alcoholic and coke addict. And so I almost immediately started using drugs with him. And over the course of the next six years, my addictions really spiraled. So it's a it's it's in part a love story because we were very much in love. We had a really fun, glamorous, exciting relationship. You know, I traveled all over the world with him and I got to meet a bunch of celebrities. So the first half of the book, I think, is the funnest part. You might even want to stop reading now because it starts to get <laughs> All right. <laughs> all the fun stuff kind of starts to... Uh, well, there's really supposed to be a downward shame spiral, right? I mean, every, every good book comes with one of those. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, I mean... The thing, the thing that is, the the one thread that's definitely common to both addiction and intimacy coaching, uh, intimacy coaching and circuit partner work, is um, this thing about uh, isolation and uh, emotional isolation um, causing dysfunction. And so my dysfunction first manifested as addiction. I was emotionally isolated as a child. You know, I go into that a little bit. At, in the book and I self-medicated through drugs and alcohol. Um, and I, that kept me emotionally isolated, unfortunately enough. And then once I got sober, I spent my thirties learning how to become emotionally intimate really for the first time in my life. And not just with men, but with friends and family, you know, like basically I was letting so your guard off. down and learning to be vulnerable. <laughs> yes. Being vulnerable and being authentic. I, you know, I had a face I put out to the world and it was impossible to really get to know me. And I just, and I thought if I don't learn to open up, be authentic and vulnerable and genuinely connect with people, I'm going to either go back to drinking or I'm just going to die really miserable and alone. And uh, so my thirties were this journey of learning how to be emotionally intimate. And it was so powerful for me. And there were no intimacy coaches around back then. So I just kind of figured it out on my own. It's a little you know? trial by fire, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that's how I kind of ended up getting, uh, partly how I got into this work, but also as I detail in the book, Joe and I, we weren't exactly sexually compatible. And and to me, sexuality is, is, has always been a, a really big theme in my life. And I feel like it's, um, it's a strong part of my identity. And I think a person's sex life really is or can be a microcosm of the macrocosm of their whole life. And so uh, that relationship, you know, it eventually it eventually ended. And um, working through over the years, you know, what it all meant, what our sexual issues were all about and our relational issues were all about, it just drove me towards this type of work ultimately. Um, and also my work as a stripper, I think, you know, uh, just sexuality in general. Um, 
led me, you know, my, my passion for it led me to this work. My question is, so like I read the book and I, I see like themes of Joe kind of being more kinky, you know, like he likes to do kind of that dominant stuff. But like I see themes in the book from you of basically saying, you know, I was doing this, but I really did it because he liked it. This wasn't really my style of sexuality, although I could get into it when the Coke was there. <laughs> it's kind of the right. message I'm hearing. Yeah. So like how, how would you describe the sexual incompatibility you had with Joe? Well, you know, so... My take on Joe's sexuality was that he was attracted to sort of strong, independent women, but I think he was also a little bit threatened by them, which is not uncommon. I see that in a lot of men. Um, And I think that his way of feeling comfortable with our sex life was, I mean, he definitely had a a dominant streak. He he just was really big into BDSM. Um, And and in fact, that's kind of almost the only sex he liked to have. Whereas I, for me, it was like, Oh, let's dabble in this. This is interesting. This is, this is erotic. This is a turn on, but you know, I really just liked, um, primarily, uh, straight vanilla, passionate sex. You know, I mean, I was, I was just very kind of aggressive, I think that way or assertive and just very passionate. And I think that, um, also I was so much younger than him. And I think that uh, he just felt much more comfortable controlling the situation. So we had those two just sort of distinct um, uh, lives. You know, he liked um, BDSM more than anything, and I liked straight, passionate sex more than anything. Which I would um, consider you, I call it BDSM light or diet yeah. cake, you know, where you sometimes right. every now and then engage in yeah. it, but like cake, you don't eat cake every day. You just have it as a nice dessert, like once a month or something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They used to, I think they used to call us dabblers. I just call myself oh, a dabbler. I was a dabbler, you know, Yeah. but, um, but, uh, I think also there was this dynamic between us where I was so in love with him and I was just, it was my first really big relationship and I didn't know how to do relationships, but I, I knew that I didn't want to be controlling. You know, I, I'd seen kind of my, my parents dynamic and I thought I just never want to be um, a shrew or controlling in any way. And see, I didn't understand the difference between, you know, being empowered and being a shrew. So I just deferred to him all the time and I wouldn't ever state my needs. And I had opportunities to do that, but I just would never even do it. We had no communication skills at all. That's why a lot of my work is about communication skills, because if you can't state your needs, you have no right to expect your partner to know what they are. (laughs) But I totally did, you know, and so I ended up having affairs and he had affairs and we never talked about what we, you know, what I never, I never just sat him down and said, this doesn't work for me so much, or can we try that? Never. You know, I just went along with it. So I consider our issues to me at least as much, you know, my fault as his. Um, uh, And so I think that good sex really comes, I mean, compatibility is definitely a factor, but sometimes compatibility can be reached with open communication, you know, And, and we didn't have any of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what I do in my work, too. Like, sometimes there's one person who is not a dabbler. They really, really are finding that a bigger part of their identity is in the BDSM kink world or like Polly, for example. They see themselves as more open, um, but like their partner isn't. And so, you know, a lot of what we're trying to accomplish in therapy is are there middle grounds? Are there ways you can experiment, but that like still fit in 
whatever the value system of the relationship is? Are there ways that you can dabble but still create a space for both, you know? And I think there are some middle grounds, but like when you mentioned sexual compatibility, I do think there are some situations as well where there aren't a lot of middle grounds or easy middle grounds because of where people are coming from. Like I've definitely had people who are like, no, I am fully monogamous. I'm never interested in poly. And I have people who are like, well, I'm really fully poly and I just can't see my life in a monogamous world, you know? But the hard thing Mm -hmm. I think is that people, like people don't always know what they want. You know, like when I think of your story, you were 20 when you met Joe. And so you may have still been learning about yourself and what you wanted and liked at the time. And I see that a lot with my clients is the sense of like they're learning over time. So sometimes people will have been in a relationship for a while as they start to come to grips with like, no, I actually am a little more kinky or I am a little more interested in these other things. But like the relationship didn't start that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, with Joe and I could have really used you. <laughs> from 25, well, I'm sorry years I wasn't ago. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I feel like. Um, we weren't on the same page exactly, but we were reading from the same book because I did like doing things the way he did them sometimes. Yeah. And I feel like he probably would have liked doing things the way I did them more often if he could have worked through some other issues so that it was more of a comfortable place for him. And there were other things about, um, even back then, we didn't have the word polyamorous back then. Um, and I certainly don't think in the first few years of their relationship, I would have been open to that. But in the second three years of our relationship, I absolutely could have been, but I had no idea how to bring that up. And the funny thing is, I'm pretty sure that would have been the first point of contact for us. Like, I think we both would have been able to have that conversation with a good therapist in the room, like Mm -hmm. guiding us, you know, we could have had an open relationship and that would have saved us so much heartache. And a lot of the guilt that I went through and the shame I went through over all those um, affairs. And what's so funny is after the book came out, I started, I thought I knew a rough idea of how many affairs Joe had. Cause that was a really good sleuth, you know? And, um, <laughs> well, I started hearing from women that, um, he had <laughs> within the first year of that book coming out. I mean, the number that, of affairs I found out he had at least doubled. Because oh my I was goodness. And there were, there were great women. There were lovely women. I'm friends with them on Facebook and You're Twitter like, thanks now. a lot. <laughs> I mean, I didn't necessarily need to know this, but good to know. I okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, at least he had good taste, right? Like, like so far, every, every woman who's popped up and said, yeah, I was sleeping with him too. Nice to meet you. She's been lovely. So at least he had good taste. <laughs> well, that's the point though. So it sounds like that's what drew you into this career is you're like, wow, people really need to learn how to communicate. We could have saved us so much heartache. (laughs) I know, know, right? It's, and communication doesn't have to be so difficult, but, but frequently it helps to have a guide and a talk therapist. I mean, I'm a big believer in talk therapy too, and couples therapy, but like with you, I mean, you probably see couples and single people. Do you often get like, one part of a married couple and the other person refuses to come in. And I mean, how, Oh yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Like, so how, you know, how much of a, a stumbling block is that? And that's where as an intimacy coach, I will work with men who, um, who are married. And sometimes they tell their wives that they're seeing me. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes their wives find me, you know, there's an issue going on. His ED or premature ejaculation has been driving her so crazy that she, she does research online. She finds me. She's like, you go to this woman, she'll fix you. And I'm not, you know, (laughs) And so I, as a surrogate partner, I only work with single men. It's extremely rare that there would be a circumstance where it would really be okay to work with um, a married man. Like if his wife was just 
totally okay with it and they were leaving separate lives or something like that. And it was his only option. You know, he's almost essentially single in a way. But as an intimacy coach, I work with a lot of the same issues um, as, a, as I do as a surrogate partner, but um, it's not, the work doesn't go quite as in depth, you know, because um, surrogate partner therapy generally, not always, but frequently ends in intercourse. Whereas a, as an intimacy coach, it's more like surrogate partner therapy light, right? It's like um, these issues aren't quite as longstanding. There might not be quite so much or any trauma involved. It's just, or it's something that just came up recently. I just recently developed ED or I just recently developed um, porn dependent erections, or I've just recently had prostate surgery and I'm not sure um, why it's not functioning the way it should. But, um, you know, a lot of these guys, they've been married for 30, 40 years. They're not having much sex with their wife, but they still want to be able to function, you know, even just, just because you're 60 doesn't mean you're not a sexual being anymore, but that doesn't mean your wife wants to come to the session with you because she doesn't care if your dick is working. Yeah. Well, no, I've definitely seen that where, um, you know, like I think sometimes a male's performance is linked to his sense of being a man. And so yeah. whether or not his partner wants to have sex isn't always relevant. It's more right. that feeling of I, I want to be confident in myself again. Um, so I will say, yes, I do work with clients where there's one person. But again, in my situation, see, like I think in yours, if you did it without both parties being aware, it could feel like a sort of professional affair, which would really get you and the partner in trouble, <laughs> you know, like in, yes, in a lot yes. of As a sticky partner, waters. It's just, yeah, it's just not. It's, it's, Whereas it's, for it's me, though, I'm not like, I'm really just a talk partner. So I can see anybody individually. I will say the therapy looks very different when somebody is coming in and their partner is not because sometimes some of my work is either helping people come to terms with your partner doesn't want to have a sex life. What does this mean for you? How are we going to cope? Or if you are going to, like, if you're like, and sometimes it can be like a, should I stay or should I leave type of therapy? Because I am a sexual person. I do want this to be a part of my life, but I'm not sure how to proceed. So I will say a lot of times when it's in that context, uh, that's the type of therapy I end up doing um, because I'm trying to help people cope with a situation that may not change. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I get clients like that um, as a coach that are in a relationship and they probably haven't told their wife um, because they don't have a sexual relationship. And he's starting to think, you know, oftentimes it's around age 50 or whatever when he's starting to realize, you know, my my days actively sexual might be numbered or yeah, yeah. 60. I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, there are men in their 80s having great sex, but um usually there's like some sort of a milestone, maybe like a parent has died or they're hitting. Absolutely. Or the 10 year marks, like 40, 50, 60. There's something about a death and like a death. I literally did a podcast earlier today about this. Like when people face death, it breathes new life and it makes you reevaluate who you are and what you want out of life. So it's just so interesting. You have the same theme. It's like, yep, it always happens. I do. And frequently, you know, I'll be working with them on something just, you know, practical matters. You know, why am I having um, ED or delayed ejaculation all of a sudden when my urologist, you know, I've had all the tests done and everything is medically, physiologically functioning normally. And so we're working together on that. And the more I get to know them, because most of my coaching um, sessions, I'll see a client sometimes 
uh, for one session or two sessions, or maybe five or six at the most generally, but most of them are for three or four sessions. So I'm getting to know this guy and getting to know a little bit about his relationship because we talk, you know, a lot during the sessions as well. And I may end up referring him to a therapist because he's, he's got it. Once he gets the practical matters, like his, you know, the functioning of his genitals working again, then he has to decide what he's going to do with them. And does he want to stay in this relationship? And that's outside of my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I got a hard a on now, where am I going to use it? <laughs> right, right. You know, what should I do with it? You know, and, and uh, some of them just need to talk to a therapist about, or maybe get, actually get uh, marital counseling or, um, but you know, a lot of them, I personally, if I was in a relationship where my partner stopped having sex with me, I mean, that's a really serious, that would be a really serious thing. I would have to decide if I was staying in that relationship, no matter how good everything else was. That's how big a part of my sexual, my identity, my sexuality is, you know, I mean, it's a really big deal. It's interesting you bring that up because I think it's a big theme in the work that I do is this. So like what I'll find is, and it can be either gender, any, any representation, right? But like whoever is the person who wants sex still, um, they feel guilty because they're a sexual person and they want sex. They want, and they want their partner to want it with them. They want to feel desired, but they're with a partner who just doesn't want it, is not interested in it anymore. So there's this severe guilt of, like, I mean, it, like, I think one are sometimes as a culture we don't give people permission to be sexual people, oh, and we that's don't. that's where that like shame and like sometimes. I don't know, just just bad things happen when we link shame to normal things. And sex is a yeah. normal thing. And so as a result, people are, or they think, should I stay? Am I just going to stay in a sexless marriage forever? Is it never going to change? And I guess I, I have a message to send to listeners, which is if you are in a sexual situation where you're not getting your needs met, it is okay to to decide whether or not that's okay for you. Because I like I hear so many people that, they feel like the worst guilt that they're even thinking about the idea of leaving a relationship because they're not having sex or they're not in a sexually compatible relationship. But I also need people to understand it's one of the number one reasons why people do divorce because it, we do we are sexual people and we do desire and it it's a big impact on your life if you are unhappy sexually. I think you were kind of yeah. mentioning that earlier in the podcast, Kristen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I tell you, when I was stripping and I stripped um, from age 18 to 42, not that whole time. I was a realtor in that time and I was a rock star's girlfriend in that time. But for 14 years of that entire period, which is what, 24 years, um, I was a stripper. And the number of times I, you know, I, sometimes I work, a lot of that time I was working nights where you don't have a lot of in-depth conversations with your customers. You know, you're bopping all around dancing, dancing, dancing. But um, I worked day shift for a while, especially in my late 30s and early 40s. And you sit and talk a lot more. And the number of guys, the percentage of guys in strip clubs in the daytime who have that story where, and a lot of them are madly in love with their wives. Others, you know, they're just, they love their wife. They've been together a long time, but it, very frequently starts with after the kids were born or after the second kid or whatever. And then it slowly just evolved from there. And she just doesn't want it anymore. And they do feel guilty. They feel horribly guilty and they haven't cheated. They haven't gone out, but there's an anger and a resentment building and they will come in the club and you know, you get to know them. Maybe they're regulars and you hear that story either the first time they come in or the 10th time they come in. But then you you keep hearing it over and over and over again. And I 
I would say to some of these guys after a while, you either need to get therapy or, uh, out of there. Don't, or I'm not, I'm, I would never recommend an affair ever, but I would say either hire a professional, <laughs> either get, do everything you can do to try to make it work with your wife and then either get a divorce or hire an escort. Because I personally, like, I just, you're feeling guilty. Is she feeling guilty? I don't know. I I'm always curious. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're the therapist. How often is the other person without the sex drive feeling guilty compared to the one with the sex drive? Who's Very frequently, guilty? like, cause they, okay. they know that there's this in, in these marriages, there's this understanding of like, we're supposed to be sexual with each other. Like I'm supposed to have this desire and I don't. So often the guilt is mutual. It's just different in how it presents. So the person who's not having sex is feeling guilty that they feel no desire. And I hear again and again, I want to want sex. I just don't, it's gone. And again, it's funny. The story is similar because it's, it's usually after the second kid, it started to slow down after the first kid, but by the second kid, it seems to go away and I, there's a lot of dynamics to it that I've learned over the years for why couples are headed down this path. But a, a big portion is that when people move from the honeymoon phase to the long-term relationship phase, we haven't given people the education to to create and maintain desire long-term in relationships. So like there's this lack of awareness of, oh, this is something we both have to put effort into to maintain its strength. And to your something you said earlier, you have to learn what you like and what means like what you are interested in. You have to learn about your desires. And for people who come from situations where that wasn't allowed, they weren't given permission to be their sexual selves, whatever that is, there yeah. can be repression that they have to work through. There can be this sense of, I've just never thought about it because I never thought it was okay. But the answer is usually there's mutual guilt unless one of them's a sociopath. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is rare. And, yeah. And, you know, I think for the guy, a lot of these guys, I, I, would, I would tell them, look, you're not going to get any points in heaven for being a martyr. So, you know, <laughs> so stop with the, you know, do you have to do something? And I think for, I think a lot of them don't understand because men in general are given more license to be in touch with their sexuality and their wants and needs. They do, they do frequently lose touch with that as they get older. You know, so many of my clients, in fact, that's why they come to me because they, these guys are not insensitive to their partner's needs. And again, I generally work with straight men. So I'm, I'm speaking in a lot of cis terms here, but yeah. most of my clients are straight um, men who are not insensitive to their partner's needs. Um, they're overly concerned and so much so that they, they feel like sex is something that they do to their partner and that the success or failure of every encounter rests on their shoulders mm-hmm. and that they need to be wholly focused on her pleasure. And they slowly over the years really lose touch with their own sort of authentic and instinctual primal caveman inner sexual being and then you lose a little testosterone around age 40 and then that's where the ed comes in and at the same time these same men are not aware that women are not raised the way they're raised we don't raise our women to be in touch with their sexuality we we and we raise women to feel um uh threatened by each other's sexuality Mm -hmm. and to put shame on each other like in high school first you have religion and your parents and society that are devaluing and demonizing female sexuality to begin with. Mm. And then you have your circle of friends that 
I have to say, we don't talk about this enough. Women tend to be threatened by other women because there's a, I think we believe there's a finite number of partners out there. And so if you're sexual in high school before your group of girlfriends is, you can be very easily ousted from the tribe and then made to feel shamed. And um, a lot of men don't understand that. A lot of women aren't 100% in tune with their wants and needs. And since men aren't generally taught to communicate or to how to ask the right questions. It's a whole, I, can I use this word? It's a shit show. This, <laughs> no, you're fine. I'm fine <laughs> with shit show. That's my life. I just work with shit show after shit show <laughs> and therapy. I mean, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. Kristen, yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation, but we are towards the end of the podcast. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a very fun conversation. But then also, do you want to just give a little blurb to our listeners for like who you are, how to find you, you know, your links and all that, all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and it has been fun. I feel like we've been all over the place. We have. You know, the, <laughs> those, those are the funnest conversations sometimes. Um, so I'm easy to find. I'm kristincasey.com and Kristen is spelled with an I-N. So it's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-C-A-S-E-Y.com. And you'll find everything about my book and my writings and my coaching and my surrogate partner therapy. They all have their own page. Um, if you're into the Joe Walsh thing, there's a, a page just for photographs from that whole period with a bunch of celebrities and stuff. So there's just a whole gallery of pictures there. You will also find that on my Instagram and my Facebook, and I have a Twitter. And most of those you'll find under Ms. Kristen Casey. So they're all linked on my website, kristencasey.com. Um, so you'll find everything on that one page. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to the About Sex podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com or www.aboutsexpodcast.com. Thank you again, Kristen, for joining us and stay kinky, St. Louis.